to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, people, the gentleman on my show today has a legendary voice. Whether you know him from uh, Deep, uh, Deep Purple, Rainbow, his solo career, he just kicks ass. He has a new album coming out on October 28th called Beauty of the Beast, which is pretty killer. I was at the gym, I was on the treadmill, I was listening to the title track, and I hate the gym, but it kept me going. And my guest is the one, the only, Joe Lynn Turner. How you doing, Joe? Good, Steve. Thank you very much. Yeah, that'll keep you going for sure. And we, track. It is, you know, it's funny, it's, it's funny how music, when you listen to some music, it just gets into you, because I'm someone who hates the gym, I hate, you know, but my wife's like, you have to go, you have to stay in shape, and when you hear a good tune, like yours, it's such a, the, the title track just rocks from the beginning, and you're like, alright, this next five minutes, I can, I'll stay on here instead of, you know, bailing out. Yep, 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 there's quite a few other uh, tracks like that, so, uh. All you got to do is find them, put them in a play order, and uh, you're going to be in the gym for, for an hour and a half. So you'll be fine. <laughs> now, how did the album come come about? It's, you know, because as I, you know, someone like you has had such a legendary career, and you, you're a very accomplished singer, and you you probably strive to work with people of your level. How, did, how do you put that together? I mean, it, it must be hard because, one... You know, let's say you're going to get a guitarist. They're thinking, oh, he's played with Blackmore or Yngwie. They're probably like, oh, shit, I hope I, I, hope I can hang. How did you put this album right. together? How did it start? Well, uh, some things happened. Some great things happened by accident. And I was uh, playing for Peter Tecklin's brother's uh, 50th birthday party. Peter had hired us, uh, the Joel and Turner band. And, of course, Tommy, his brother, is a big fan. And... Um, at that party, I got to be very friendly with Peter. Uh, we saw that we had a lot in common. And so uh, we started talking, and he said, I wonder what it would be like, you know, if we kind of put something together. And I said, great idea. I've been wanting to do something like this for a long time. And um, he gave me one track. I went back to back home to and um, wrote to it, sent him the vocal, and he loved it. And we just went from there. And from there means that I went to Sweden. We did another two tracks. And then um, we the pandemic basically hit. So we had to write virtually like a lot of people do. He would send me tracks. I would send him the vocals and lyrics on top of that. And um, little by little, we finished 11 tracks. And I'm very proud of this album, Belly of the Beast. Now, when the pandemic hit, did that change some of your writing style? Something where, you know, it was, you know, people, you look back and, and people were scared shitless. I mean, people, we didn't know what was going on. I mean, you know, you're a musician. All of a sudden you think, right. well, I may not be able to tour for a while, but then you're like, oh my God, it's a year. Did it influence your writing style, some of the pandemic? Did it sit there? Did you sit there and really delve deeper? Well, I think so. Absolutely. Because uh, during the pandemic, it was, it was un, it was abject fear in people, and um, there's a saying that the only real prison is fear. And as soon as you can uh, get over fear, you're you're totally free. And I just, just saw this fear in people, and I saw the governments uh, uh, really asking some very ludicrous things for us to do that were taking our freedoms away. And I started to realize that uh, this is going to going to go a lot further than than what it is right now. And obviously, here we are. It has gone further. 
And I started to think that art is a reflection of reality, of the world we live in, and that any good artist has to reflect the reality that he lives in. So I just dug really deep and started to write songs that I, of what I saw around me and what was happening for the most part. Uh, also, not only outside of me, but inside of me, what was happening and uh, how I was responding to all of this. So I'd have to say yes, good question. It certainly did temper my writing because it wasn't, you know, Moon, June, Spoon, or Hearts of Flowers. We're going through right now very dark days, in my opinion. The world is in chaos. And I think this album uh, confronts it and expresses that because, uh, again, somebody's got to say it. And uh, I saw a lot of people shying away from that. And that's not what art is. No matter how difficult it may be to literally um, embrace it, you have to embrace what's happening, what the truth is. And only then, I think, can you surmount it, uh, overcome it. And that's really what humanity has to do right now, is to overcome a lot of these, these uh, um, shall we say, restrictions that are being imposed on us. I think now most people are starting to realize that some of them really didn't matter. All of the statistics that are coming out are saying that, hey, this was, this was worse than, than had we not done it. You know, for example, Sweden with the lockdown, no lockdowns, really. And they had a very low rate, you know, of transmission and everything. So I think with time, the truth comes out. Now, now, did you write Rise Up during that time? Or does that the songs to yeah. explain? Tell me more. I want to hear more about the songs Rise Up and also, of course, the title track. But where did Rise Up come from? And when did you decide yeah. to write that? That's a good one for the treadmill. And also, <laughs> also for driving. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Rise Up was a, a, a is an anthem about freedom. Um, it, it really is about. Uh, I guess let's go back to when uh, Twisted Sister D. Snyder, good friend of mine, um, went to Congress and, and was fighting for the freedom of lyrics for rock and roll, um, and he said, "We're not going to take it." Well, basically, that's the truth. We're not going to take it anymore. So I'm trying to incite the people to rise up. you got to fight to be free because freedom is not free. Uh, my father was, was in the Second World War in Korea and a whole bunch of places. He was a staff sergeant, and um, he would tell me stories about this. And then I went to Iraq with the boys, uh, a band called Big Noise, with some famous guys. And uh, we put a man together to play for the troops. And I saw some really incredible things there, meaning the bizarre and, and, and actually awful things I experienced. For example, one, one kid I was talking to, he was 19, and uh, the next day I went to look for him at mess hall, and a friend of his said, no, he's not here. And I said, well, where is he? He said, he's not here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, he was out on reconnaissance last night, and a sniper got him. And it hit me. I mean, this kid was 19. And his life was over. And I started to look around at, at the major, major corporations that were there, like Black, Black uh, Rock, and, and what was really happening and how people were just making billions of dollars on this war, and they were sacrificing lives to do it. Um, there were no weapons of mass destruction, and 
so on and so forth, as we found out. So, I mean, it was an unjustified thing. So this opened up my perspective a lot. And again, uh, I wanted to take rise up and lift your fist in the air and just say, we're going we're gonna to break down the walls. You know, we're going to rise above the flames. We're going to take back our freedom. Now, Belly of the Beast. Tell me about that song. Yeah. Says, that's, that, that's a title track. And I always think, you know, I come from a generation of albums. You know, now people buy singles, but albums. And, you know, you always sit there. And when I was younger, you remember the title track. You remember looking yeah. at an album going, oh, you know, oh, the chrono is great. And look at the design. Now people don't give a shit. But tell me where this song came in. How do you, how do you decide, how, where did it come from? And how did you decide it was going to be the title track? Because it explains everything. Belly of the Beast is an old phrase. It appears in the Bible. It, it appears, Anthrax had a song. Seagal uh, had a movie. You know, it, it's, there's a documentary out, a very good documentary on Belly of the Beast. It simply means the beast is rearing its ugly head again. And the beast is the system that we live in. It is the economic, uh, governing, uh, educational uh, body that we that we exist in today. And now the belly of the beast means we are in so deep in this situation. And if we don't, quote unquote, wake up soon, I don't know what's going to happen to humanity. However, I do believe humanity will prevail because we've always prevailed. Every time they've tried to do this since Roman days, Romans tried it. Many, many different aspects of history repeat this belly of the beast. So, again, it's not an embrace, but I had to pick it because this was the situation. This says it all. We are in the belly of the beast. There's no mercy in the belly of the beast. And right now, that's what I'm trying to get my message across to people to say, look, you've got to fight back. You've got to do this. Uh, the chorus says, heaven help us, because I also believe this is a spiritual war as much as it is a material war. Uh, as quotes in, in uh, Revelations in the Bible, um, it, it says how dark against light, good against evil. This is uh, since time immemorial. Uh, man has always had the angel and devil on each shoulder. Um, basically symbolic of good and bad, uh, you know, positive and negative uh, uh, aspects of physical reality uh, and spiritual reality. So I believe that there's absolutely a demonic situation here that has encompassed some of the people, especially these leaders in the world, for power and for gain and for, for riches, and they want to make us into slaves. That's basically what they want to do. And from all indicative purposes, I see it every day. I see what's happening. And I don't just look at the mainstream news because that's just a lot of propaganda. But I look at alternative news. I search for truth. And you know what they say about truth? It's uh, You got your story, there's your story, my story, and the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So that's what I'm looking for. And I'm trying to enlighten people about this. You know, instead of just I love you, you love me, kind of a rock song or whatever. It, it's not the time for that right now, Steve. Right now, we need action. Now, now, do you think, you know, looking back, 
when you were 20, 21, 22, 23, did you ever think that you'd be writing music like this? I mean, at that point in your life, you must say, you know, you're making a statement now, which all music is art. But did you ever think you'd be in your future writing something that goes this deep and the world has changed? Well, um, I think solo albums in my past have, have sprinkled this this message. Um, Babylon, Holy Man, um, I could go into Dark Days, I could go into uh, 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 Blood Money. You know, there's a whole bunch of songs that I've written about the past that are pertinent to, to the situation. Uh, calling out the corporations, calling out the inhumanity to man. But um, as far as going this deep, I think that some people arrive as an artist. Um, I don't think all people do. I think some people have a craft, a songwriting skill. But I think to arrive as an artist, you've really got to take a chance and put your kind of go out on a limb, stick your neck out. And um, Bowie was like that, although I'm not comparing myself, believe me. Uh, what I'm trying to say is he was a changeling. He was always transitioning. He was transforming. And I think this was a natural transformation for me in every way, in physical attributes to to my the artistic design that I wanted this album to be, especially at this age. Yes. Now, when did you start writing music? You know, I want to talk about, you know, I want to talk about your alopecia too because you've come out and yeah. you've done that. And it's funny because... I was born with a congenital cataract, so I grew up legally blind in one eye. So I got picked on occasionally uh -huh. as a kid, and, and I ended up becoming a right. stand-up comedian for many years. And I think that creativity was spurred by my sensitivity and wanting to be accepted. Now, for you, yeah. you know, I heard, you know, when you were younger, you were, you were pushed around a little bit. Tell me about that, because yeah. I think that really delves into creative people. I just talked to a friend of mine who's on Better Call Saul, and he said at the end of the day... He's still that guy who just wants the attention and wants to be accepted. What made you decide? Well, it, yeah, I think I think there's a certain amount of attention, but isn't it strange that those of us with an affliction want more attention? You know, I mean, why would why you know? I I use the phrase that I was hiding in plain sight. I mean, I was afraid to go out of the house. And my mom used to tell me, if you don't go out there and fight your own battles, then you're going to have to fight me. So I'd go out there and take the biggest kid I could find who was picking on me and beat the hell out of him. <laughs> really, I did. And um, it's strange, and I've always thought it strange, that I wanted to be on the stage where everyone can see me. Um, wearing the hairpiece, the wig, call it what you want, um, was never a... It was always an open secret, okay? It was always an open secret. I wasn't trying to fool anybody, but this is what the uniform, you know, we have a uniform of rock and roll since the Beatles came out. It was all about hair and the look and everything. And so for years, that um, that's sufficed for me, uh, that I could sort of hide in plain sight, you know, uh, with this look. But at the same time, I don't think the world was really accepting this look until, well, not so recently, but it became fashionable. Especially, the, there you go, brother. We got the we, we got the Paul brothers. brothers. <laughs> That's right, man. And uh, you know, there's a special feeling about that because you go into a nightclub and if there's a ball, bounce it. 
he just lets you through. You know, <laughs> I always, I always crazy. joke, I always joke. We have a a bar, our secret society called the the non hair club for men, where where we make fun of That's guys. Right. We make fun of guys who are doing a comb over because they don't have the balls to cut it off. Right. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, Steve, that they're all going to end up like that, yeah. all of them. And they're going to have to make a choice one day whether they're going to shave the sides and go this way or not at all. Because I think you look better this way than you do with the sides. You know, that's my personal point. So anyway, I'll, I'll let me re- rewind a little bit. This started at three years old. This was very, very uncommon. Uh, usually alopecia, uh, quote-unquote, victims... This happens around 30, 35 years old if it's going to happen, whether it's a male or a female. So I was kind of a case study, and I'm in the uh, medical books, actually, uh, over at the Mayo Clinic because I, uh, a, a Dr. Visconti finally got a hold of me and made um, facial hair grow, body hair grow with steroids, things like this. And um, I only could do it for so long, and yet never, never on the top. Because this autoimmune condition is really not that I don't have the follicles to grow hair because they checked me and said, they're, they're there. It's just that your body goes into a shock. And what is that shock? Well, a lot of the doctors said that I was, quote, unquote, vaccinated too early as a baby when they were giving you polio and measles and chicken pox. And a cocktail just stunned my body. And my body went into a shock. And what it does is protect itself that way. So that's what an autoimmune system really is. And um, since then, you know, I found where the hair was just, uh, just a way to confine to the uniform. And now they asked me, why didn't I do it before? I said, because it's like no wine before it's time. You know, you have to do it at the right moment. Um, I've got a love and support system here with my wife and family. It's amazing. And uh, my friends. And and I believe that the world uh, doesn't look at this as such a strange and odd type of uh, uh, look. You know, it's um, it's very normal. In fact, my friend called, said I'm updated. <laughs> well, yeah, well, no, it's funny, though, because, you know, I like when you when you're younger, like for me, you'd mentioned Bowie earlier. When I'm tired, my one eye's blue, my one eye's green. Well, when yeah. I saw Bowie with that, I said, oh, it's OK. Yeah. And then when I was in college and high school and Colin Hay became big, Colin Hay had a lazy eye. And I was like, oh, it's right. OK. And it became more accepted. And it's funny because baldness wasn't accepted. You look at old TV shows and movies, there's no bald guys in them. Even those period pieces when someone's, you know, I lived in Hollywood for a long time. You go up for an audition, and if it was for like a 50s show, like, yeah, you know, you're bald. We can't use you because no one did it back then. Right. It, it's true. It was non-fashionable. It was non-accepted in many ways. It, it almost said that you have no virility, which is far from the truth, because at 71 years old, I'm still... You know, I'm still virile. And uh, it has nothing to do with any of that. Yul Brynner, I think, was the only one. And he shaved his head. You know, he had to shave. And he looks better without without it, I think. I've seen pictures of him recently. And, yes, um, I would say it's all right as soon as I saw Yul Brynner and all that. But it still was not accepted in this profession, you know, in, in this industry. So and, how- uh now, how do you, so how, how, would you, now it is. how would you deal with that? Okay, okay. So when did you decide 
you wanted to be a musician? Were you a little kid? Because, you know, you did you did more than become a musician. You've had a, a great career as a frontman, which I always I always right. think, you know, how do you become a frontman? But when did you decide that you wanted to be, was, was music instilled in you at a young age? Yes, very. Uh, my parents were always playing uh, music around the house, singing. My father was a great singer. He used to sing for the USO shows in the Army. Sang with Sinatra and a whole bunch of them, Marjorie Reynolds, everybody. And um, so he was always singing. My mom had a pretty good voice, you know. And we were playing everything from opera to the Sinatra standards and Dick Damone and you, you name it, you know. So there was always music. And um, I was given an accordion when I was, I think, six years old. It was a mini Galenti, okay, and uh, for small hands. And I learned to play the accordion. And then I started to realize that this was a very unsexy instrument. <laughs> and um, and I asked my dad to get a guitar. <laughs> so he came he came home with this guitar that had telephone wires on it. You know, it was awful. But I managed to to make it in a Beatle book, and I managed to make the chords right. And then as things progressed, you know, obviously I improved my instrument, but. Um, that's how it started. But I think from an early age, again, you talk about attention. It was always, you know, a ham in a way. I always, I just felt it naturally. I always felt like I, I wanted to go forward and, and, and be the center of things. Um, now, that's a risky business because a lot of slings and arrows will come at you that way. You know what I mean? Uh, you have no idea how dangerous it can really be to, to you personally and professionally. But um, I was a guitar player, singer, and I could always sort of hide behind the guitar in a band as well. It seemed. I sang by accident. We had a lead singer. He got drunk one night in a local band we were in, and uh, somebody had to finish the set. So I just stood up to the mic. I knew the songs, and I started singing, and this crowd of people came up forward. And then I realized that I had a better voice than the than the singer. So, so you. So we got you, rid of the singer. You that never, you never knew you had such a great voice until that time. You had no idea, like you just because you have a great voice. But yeah. so it was just something that a fluke accident because a guy got drunk, and then next thing you come in and they hear your pipes and people go crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and then I started to build confidence that maybe I am a singer, and I was still playing guitar. And only when uh, Blackmore called me, you know, he told me quite specifically, he says, you know, you're not going to be on guitar. And I said, no, I figured that <laughs> with you. <laughs> so so uh, he says, so you're going to have to, you know, and your hands get really big when you don't have the guitar in front of you singing. So you have to learn a whole new dimension to your stage presence and performance. And it took a while, but I got there. And... Uh, now it seems natural, but uh, I still, I mean, I still have a great collection of vintage guitars that I used to go down to Red Bank to the guitar trader and, and collect and buy guitars. You know, you know, so that's how it happened. Very quite, again, accidentally. Now, what was it like when Blackmore called you? Because all of a sudden, you know, he's a great guitarist. Now you're going from a guy in New Jersey to a band and you end up getting huge but tell me about that whole how he found out about you and what it was like starting to play with him because i've heard he's a little temperamental <laughs> a little <laughs> just a little but um some, some people call it that some people call it difficult you know whatever 
but uh, I always found a modicum of uh, a measure of, of, of meeting of the minds because I think uh, my psychology adapts me to that. But uh, what happened was is that I had a band called Fandango, and we had four albums on RCA records, the recording Cemetery of America, as we used to call it. And, um, and I was playing at a club in Long Island. Uh, I think it was called My Father's Place. And um, you might remember it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, apparently he came to see me there and uh, was hiding in the shadows because uh, a few days after that, I got a phone call from his personal roadie and uh, Barry Ambrosio. And he was asking me all kinds of questions. And I just said, who are you? I have no idea who you are. And then he said, well, you know, um, do you like Deep Purple? Do you like Rainbow? And I was like, who, who is this? You know, like, I'm going to hang up this phone. He said, no, no, don't hang up. I'm standing next to Richie Black. He wants to talk to you. And I went, what? What kind of cheap joke, you know, is this? One of my friends is playing. And he got on the phone. Hello, mate. You know, it was just that simple. And he asked me to come down and audition. So I went out to Syops at Long Island. There's a studio. And uh, there he was sitting at the board with Roger Glover. And I got five minutes of conversation. I went into the studio, started singing. And I saw them nodding their head. I figured, okay, I was doing all right. And they came in and said, you got the gig. Now, that changes your life. I mean, you know, all of a sudden, you're, yeah. you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to be performing international <clears throat> and you're not making videos. As, you know, what does that do for an artist? Like, you know, you sit there and you go, all of a sudden, you had this thing, Fandango, you have four albums, but all of a sudden, you're going, you know, you're going from, you're going up a level, a big level. What does that do? Does it, does it affect you? Do you get nervous or what happens? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I didn't understand, quite honestly, I didn't understand. What level? I mean, I have, Purple is one of my favorite bands, and I didn't understand what level Rainbow was at at that time, because Bandango, we were more Eagles oriented, you know, Poco that type of thing. And um, because originally I grew up in a hard rock band called Ezra, and we did uh, originals like Purple and Sabbath and so on. So I've got a background of that, but. But at that point in, in my life, I was into another form of music because I'm always searching different forms of music. And um, what it did was it scared the hell out of you because all of a sudden you you realize, hey, uh, my first gig is like in front of twenty thousand people, <laughs> and I'm I'm really not that uh, sort of conditioned for it yet. And you learn by trial trial by fire, I think it's called, right? You just there you are, and you are thrown into it, man, and you've got to deliver. So um, for a while, it was trepidatious, to say the least, and, and uh, with a few pointers from Blackmore, of course, you know, because he was kind of, he was almost fatherly in a way, you know, if you can believe that. He would sit me down and just say, well, do this, but don't do that, you know. This is what I'm looking for. I mean, be yourself, but do this, you know, and it helps a lot. So then you find yourself and you start to take on your own persona and uh, it becomes a, a really natural state of being, I think. Now, it's, now I, love, you, I love performing. Now, you love performing and now all of a sudden you're with Rainbow and you start shooting videos and, you know, 
videos are everywhere. MTV changes people. Everyone who hadn't heard a band. I mean, I remember sitting there watching MTV and all these, and I've luckily I've interviewed a lot of those artists since then. What was your experience on shooting videos? Because some people hate it because people don't understand it's a long day. It's not like you just sit there and go oh, in. But what was your experience um, shooting the videos? It is a long day. It's a long, stressful, nerve-damaging day. Well, first of all, when, when we started to do Stone Cold, we, we didn't know, really know what we were doing. Nobody did because it was so new. So we just kind of felt our way through it and had to uh, trust uh, the cameraman and, and the producer and so on and so forth. I mean, we really didn't have any experience. And I can remember we were, it, it was just at the very start of MTV. So there was no guidelines, you know, to go by. And um, eventually you find your way through it. You know, by Death Valley Driver on the second album, we we had the whole storyline picked. You know, we had the whole storyline picked out, and uh, the graveyard scene, and you know, the cars and the bike and the whole thing. So we developed, we developed, but we were never. I gotta say, Rainbow was never into the video. We were into the play, the performance. We were in. That was more important to us. We run the contract to make a certain amount of videos. And uh, we, we met our contract obligation. But we were never one for that. We were always just, let's get out on the road. And uh, and as the least amount of video time we spend for us was was the better. No. So some, some guys ham it up, you know, but we weren't like that. Now, what was it like for you? Because then all of a sudden, you're the lead singer. People start, more people are going to recognize you watching videos. I mean, your life has to change because you're already in a band, but then people just, and it's not like MTV only plays these videos once a day. They play the same video over and over. How did your life start oh, changing? Because yeah. people must have said, oh my God, there's Joe Lynn Turner. Oh, we got to get an autograph. Yeah. Or hey, hey, we got to get part of his yeah. shirt. I mean, what is that like for you as as someone who's, yeah. you, know, you wanted attention, but you also have a shyness because every performer, I think, has an in, we're shy in the bottom of us. We want our privacy. What was it like for you, especially with you dealing with alopecia that the public didn't know? Well, they eventually knew, but uh, what it was was, I wrote a song called Fame and Fortune, and uh, it really tells everything. Okay, it was on a Sunstorm album on Frontiers. And basically what it's saying is fame and fortune has made you change in their eyes. But fame and fortune has only brought me pain and sacrifice. And that's true. I think fame is a trap. Some people ask, what would you rather be? Would you rather be rich or famous? And I, <laughs> I go, well, rich is good. You know, famous is a trap. Fame is, fame is a cage that uh, sometimes you can't, you know, sounds all good to everybody that you're famous and everybody knows who you are. But it can be very lonely, very lonely, because you can't do the things you normally would do anymore. You can't go just go out. You have to think ahead of time before you go out with maybe a, a, a bodyguard or something. You have to have somebody with you that's going to, if there's trouble, because a lot of people are not going to like you and a lot of people are going to like you. And you're going to have their girlfriends clawing all over you. And that can get you into a fight. And it's crazy. 
And I, I'm telling you, for example, I even had uh, Richie and I both, we had to go to a, uh, we were called to court because some girl claimed that that I, I, I was the father. And the DNA test said I was not the father. You know, it, it probably is. I don't even know this girl. And things like that happened to you. So it's not a little, not a bed of roses. Tell you. And it, yeah, it does change you. And you see another perspective of life, I think. That's, that's what it is. You see the perspective of what it can do, which is why I'm, I think now at this stage in the game, I'm still highly recognized, but, um, I take it differently. I, I'm very, I'm, I'm very respectful and I'm happy that I'm still relevant and all that. But I try not to, uh, say, wave my own flag at all. You know, I'd rather sit in the back of the room, you know, out of sight. Now, what was it like writing with Richie? Because you co-wrote with him. What is it writing? Because what is it like? What is it like collaborating with someone who you know is a is a master of guitar? How, what what was that like? It's like Stone Cold. Well, how did that happen? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, great story. Good song to pick. Uh, Richie, at that point, Rainbow wanted to be more commercial. I mean, that's why I came in because I had a more commercial voice, at least. I have a commercial voice if I want a commercial voice. I also have a metal voice. I also have a sweet voice. You know, I can adapt my voice to all kinds of different things. And that's a gift. But we wanted to be more commercial. We wanted to do, we wanted to be in a top 10. All these bands, Journey, Foreigner, everybody. And we still wanted to keep an edge, a hard rock edge. So we needed to, to walk the fine line between hard rock and a little bit of pop with integrity. And um, Richie came up with this moody piece uh, that later became Stone Cold. And the way Stone Cold was written was um, I went down to Roger Glover's room one night uh, in a hotel. We were on the road. And um, and he was, his eyes were glassy, like he was tearing. And I said, Roger, what the hell happened, man? He just got off the phone and he said, she left me Stone Cold. And his wife had told him that it was over at the time. And uh, I just went, you know, first of all, I wanted to console him. But the only way we're going to do that is go down and get drunk, which we did. But before that, I said, I'll be right back. I ran up to my room and I started writing lyrics to Stone Cold, if you can believe that. But there was a song there. There was a song there. And uh, I, I kind of touched upon every man's Stone Cold. When Jackson Brown wrote, when he wrote for every man, for example, it, it, you should always write for every man. It's not just you, because that's self-indulgent. You should write what happens to you, but in perspective of the world. A lot of people have broken hearts. A lot of people have gone through what he went through and I went through. I went through my own breakup like that. So it wasn't unfamiliar to me, but that's what triggered Stone Cold. And then when we got when we got into this studio, uh, the police were were there doing Ghost in the Machine, so we were kind of laying over for two three days, and it was a fabulous experience to li to listen to uh, to some of the songs from that album by them. But what happened was is that we got in this studio in Morin Heights, Canada, by Sansibar, and um, there was a huge snowstorm, an ice storm. 
and there was three walls of glass, one of stone, you know, it was like an octagon and wood floor, and I could see the weather. And I'm singing Stone Cold, and that's where the line, you put me in the deep freeze came from. Just completely, you know, an ad lib. Just threw it out there. And it became one of the signature. Everybody always comes up to me, oh, you put me in the deep freeze. You know, it's like, just stuff, stuff happens, you know. So, so that's where it came from. So right in with Richie, though, to be more poignant, he'll come up with, with some music. He'll run it by me, and I'll say this, not this, this part, not that part. And then I'll come back with, with some lyrics and melody, and then we'll put the whole thing together. When, when did you learn that you could write songs? I mean, did you write poems as a kid? Did you, I mean, it's not like, you know, everyone, like, as I said, I did comedy. I can write jokes. I've written jokes for people. Right. It's easy for me. I can right. sit there. I listen to a song, and I've tried to write songs before. Some guys said try to write funny songs, and I couldn't. I, I, I just, because they sucked. But how did you find, because it's it's not like a song is so much, it can be so much more than poetry. Like, I screw around, I write haikus, just as a joke. You know, and they're funny and they're stupid. Right. But when did you right. learn that you could write songs and how do you develop that art form to back to where we said in the beginning to back where you are now writing so deep. But when did you start really writing? Like sort of a sentimental kid, probably because of my condition in a way I was very sensitive. I think you mean you were sensitive, which is why you could write jokes about it. It's the, op it's the same thing on the opposite. You know, you'd make jokes about uh, people's uh, impairments uh, in order to cover up your own. You know, it's kind of simple like that. And, and that's what we did. So I would always write this beautiful, try to write beautiful poetry and give it to the girl and clap and all that. You know, and I had some success with that. So I saw that there was something there. But when I started to write songs, actual songs, it, it was pretty primitive at, the, at first. And then I... I I progressed, but one thing that really helped was uh, I went to university uh, as an English literature major, and um, it, it's funny how that happened, too, because I didn't want to do anything but music at that point, you know, at 18 years old in my life, and um, I went so that, because uh, Vietnam was on at the time, a lot of my friends were coming back in body bags, and I didn't believe in that war, and we still don't believe in that war. But anyway, I don't believe in any war, really. War is when uh, people run out of ideas. So, um, so what happened was, is I was at two ends because my father said, "You're not running to Canada." I was a serviceman for. He had eight, ten overseas stripes, and you know, he said, "So you're not going to run." So the only thing that you got left, pal, that's the way he told me. He said, "Is go to college," and I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll sign up." So when I got to orientation, I'll never forget her, Professor Mollencock. It's been 40 years now, Mollencock. And she said to me, she said to me, all of life is contained in literature. She says, so if you want to be creative, take these literature courses. And so I said, why not? You know, I like poems. I like reading. I like this. Okay, I'll do it. And I learned so much craft. I mean, I know what iambic pentameter is. I know what onomatopoeia is. I know what rhyme. I have thesauruses, rhyming dictionaries. I still have a, a, a volume of them here in my office. 
although you can go right on online now and get it. <laughs> but, um, but I still like the books. I still like the books. So I started to develop it, you know, deeper and deeper and deeper. And it started to use some of the um, insights that I gained from the from these amazing authors, uh, authors like Hemingway and Dostoevsky and uh, Chekhov and, and people like that, you know, and I would see the storyline develop and realize that you've got about three and a half more minutes to develop this storyline. So you have to be picturesque and yet poignant at the same time. And that's what I tried to do. Uh, I mean, there's a song on this album called The uh, Fallen World, which is about the conditions we're living in now. And if you notice, it's complete rhyme. It's almost a rap. And it just describes almost everything and anything that's happening right now. And uh, when I completed that, uh, I'll never forget my wife just went, how the hell did you do that? And I said, it's really something that's built into me. You know, it's, it's a gift, but it's also a craft and a skill that you, you polish. You keep polishing. So I better know what, what I'm doing by 71. <laughs> well, yeah, well, also, okay, after Rainbow broke up, you did a solo album. So then you had probably took more of the writing responsibilities. And so and so we, when, once you do a solo album, what made you go back to to Deep Purple? And then, of course, you ended up solo again. What happened there? Yeah, well, I had, you know, I had, um, had Malmsteen and different projects. I'm not opposed to a band. I'm not opposed to solo. They're, they're different projects. When you when you do solo stuff, all the responsibility is on you, you know, and, and it's quite, uh, it can be a heavy load. So sometimes a band is easier because you can hide within the structure of the band a little bit, you know, and say, well, it wasn't my fault, it was his fault. I, I've never done that because anything that's my fault is my fault. I take full responsibility. However, it's easier. You can, like I said, hide within the band. You know, the band gets the blame, not just an individual. Although I took a lot of crap from, from people saying, as soon as I joined, it became this and that. Well, yeah, we sold more records than any configuration of Rainbow. We did more chart successes than any configuration that Rainbow had. I mean, there's static stats that prove it. And I did my job because that's what they wanted me to do. That's why people are surprised at Belly of the Beast, because it doesn't sound like the old Joe and Turner. Not the writing, not the music, not the lyric content, nothing. It's completely something else. And they didn't realize that I could do that. So, w w I was talking, I was talking about when you left and you went joined Deep Purple. Was that... Was it easy to leave after that because you knew you really wanted to well, concentrate, like you said about solos pressure? But I think you seem like someone like me that you like that pressure. You you want you know you don't you have the balls to take all the crap. So is that what happened? Yeah. You just said with Deep Purple, you said ah, you know what? I want to. I really just want to develop me as an artist. Well, I knew what was going to happen with Purple anyway, um, and I also knew what they wanted at the time. Uh, Slaves and Masters, the record I did with Deep Purple, happens to be one of Richie's favorites, and it's one of mine. And 30 years later, people are starting to realize what a great album, pound for pound, it really is. Songwriting, production, performance, you name it, that, that record stands the test of time. And I knew that it was not going to be long before either Gillen came back or the band broke up. 
because I was, remember, I'm there. I'm in the band. I know what's going on. And um, so I wasn't surprised when when BMG gave them a couple of million dollars to reform with Gillen. And believe me, that's one of the main reasons. But I always felt honored because otherwise they would have never had a perfect strangers, right? And to, to be, uh, to further, further that thought, um, Ian Pace wrote a wonderful uh, uh, part of an article where he said, Joe was the link uh, between keeping Purple alive, and we would have never gotten to any of the rest of Purple, even to this day, had he not been there. Because Richie would have blew away. He either would have started something again with Joe, or he would have uh, done completely went on his own, or done something else. And and I have to thank Ian Pacey for that because uh, he's absolutely right. I held the band together for over two years by being there and, and coming up with this product. Um, of course, you get the people who are always like, I want Gillen back, or I want Theo back, and I want this. Because in my opinion, I think people are afraid of change. Uh, and yet, change is the only thing you can be sure of in life. You read the I Ching, for example, great book, right? Legendary. Uh, change. It's, if you don't change, you die. You really do. You die inside. I mean, I'm sure you start to see yourself develop even at this uh, with your jokes are different now, you develop them differently, you're changing. And that's that's what's necessary. Change is, in, shall we say, it's inevitable. You have to. You can't stay the same all the time. It's just death. So that was the story with Purple. I knew that that was going to happen to them. And so with that, I just said, look, it was nice. Great guys. Okay, I'm out of here. I've got other things to do. And I did them. Now, you've done so much, and you've had such a long career. Do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Yeah, <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> well, Bandango, really, because we were we were big in, like, Casper, Wyoming. <laughs> you know, big market. <laughs> and, and, and we were we were driving through one night, and we didn't expect it. And we had the local rock station on. And there it was, Fandango coming at you. You know, Last Kiss or whatever the hell, was, I think it was Last Kiss. This one. And we were, we just cranked that radio up. We were just, stop the car, stop the car, you know? And, and you know, we just, we were just slapping each other five and, you know, thinking we were just, just the cat's tits, you know? It's unbelievable. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty freaky. When you start to hear yourself back like that, and and, uh, and you realize, hey, this could turn into something. Now, if people don't know this, and I looked on you know Wikipedia, it's not always right, but you've gotten a few really cool awards, like a cultural ambassador and uh, uh, to uh, Bulgaria, and you're the Golden yeah. Voice of Peru. How do they come about, and how do they make you feel? Because it's a, it's another country and they're recognizing you and it's just not like hey hey here you get a gold ribbon for this this is like how did how does bulgaria come about did you know you were big in bulgaria or what happened well i i kind of did there but uh, because um i had played with uh, a bulgarian act called brazen abbott we did like four or five records and they're brilliant nikola concept and um i played all over bulgaria 
and I was playing for uh, municipal, uh, not only just just real, real shows, regular shows, but also municipal events uh, and reaching the people, the common people. When I say common people, I don't mean like a rock audience. I mean like mothers and grandmothers would come out because it was like a day out. And um, it just started to spread, for example, in Bulgaria. And then, of course, a couple of years ago, I got asked to do uh, uh, X Factor because one of their... Uh, one of the contestants was doing Street of Dreams or Can't Let You Go, one of the Rainbow songs. And um, that just put it all over the edge, you know, as far as my popularity there. I, I was just there. Um, and uh, over almost 20,000 people at this huge event, as far as the eye could see, it was just amazing, these people. Uh, and they love music. They have a true heart for music. And, uh, and I love every each and every one of them because... They really feel it, you know. They do. They do. So yeah, these awards anyway. Um, I had one in Italy too. Um, you know, I mean, I, but I got tons of them all over the place. But I was never one for awards. You know, it, it's it's just like, you know, the Hall of Shame. I call it not the Hall of Fame. I was I was never I never wanted to. some of the highlights of your career looking back you know it can be something small as a a gig you may have played in teaneck or you know or something or a bar in philly or but what are some of the highlights when you come from someone who has played has had a career you're 71 you've been playing for a long time you've played the world you've been on tv you've you've had you know you have notoriety what is a yeah. highlight for a guy like you? You're a lead singer. You know, the lead singers, everyone's like the quarterback of a football team. You know, it's like, you know, right. what, what, is, what are some of the highlights? What have they been in your career? Well, other than, other than making Patty Iozia cry at a dance that I played that when I was 16. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I sang Misery by the Beatles and she started crying. Then I went out with her, so that was cool. But, um... Other than that moment, um, the, the biggest moment I had was when Rainbow sold out Madison Square Garden with Scorpions opening. And um, 
I used to go to Madison Square Garden, MSG. You know, you know, because you're from Jersey. And you used to see all the bands there, everybody. All of my heroes were there. You name it, I went to those shows. And that in the Fillmore East. So um, when we when we played that venue, although we played bigger, we all that, but that, that's not the important thing. The important thing was what it meant to me. And uh, it was just phenomenal that I'm standing on that stage and this is this is all for us. Part of what I was doing. And I'll never forget that that moment because that was that was the I have arrived moment really, because uh, playing in your own local area, tri state area at a venue like that, you know, just blew me away. And uh, I remember uh, our managers telling us you have to be calm. You have to just hold yourself. Don't let things run away with you. Because he saw we were all really excited about this particular menu. And um, we did. We had a great show at the garden. So I'd have to say that. Well, the album comes out the 28th, um, which people you yeah. should really check out. Do you, are you yeah. going to be touring with it? I certainly plan to. Let's put it that way. I certainly plan to be touring in 23. Right now, the field is very, very crowded, and um, we're just hoping that it opens up a bit more and we can get out there and uh, hook up with a tour, maybe with some, some other bigger bands, and, and show what we got. So, yes, the answer is simply yes. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Joe. People, go to the website, Joe Lynn Turner. I believe if you go on, you can get a, a signed copy of the, of the okay. album, which is great. And um, yeah. are you on Twitter, Joe? Um, yeah, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, all of that. Look him up, people. Look up Joe. He's a legend. Uh, go to my Facebook, Cooper Talk Radio. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk 1. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. You can find over 930 episodes at coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys (laughs) next time.